I'm Tony Epstein, and this is The Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. So, where are you at these days? What have you been thinking about? And what is it that is um, inspiring your thinking and how you're feeling about the world and your life, your place in it, your observation of this swirling kind of chaos and, and life? You know, there, there are a couple pieces. One was very personal when I was talking to my younger brother only a couple days ago, and he was just explaining what was happening in his life. And something came to me as I spoke with him. I said, have you always felt this sensation of being an island and that nobody really quite understands how you're feeling? He says, that's exactly it. And I thought about that in terms of my own self. You know, there's an island tendency that I have so that in the context of what's happening in the world at the moment, that having this sort of self-sufficiency and this island kind of tendency, which is how I guess I survived when I was growing up, it really is not that difficult because I am so self-sufficient. But I realize if I expand that thought to how people are struggling in cities and places where they really truly are quarantined inside one particular residence for who knows, it could be months at a time, that that would be very, very tough. So that's what's been really striking me is, is how people feel cut off from their normal interaction with other people. And as, you know, like the photos I've been sending you, Tonio, I'm still getting out in the woods all the time. And that's been literally like heaven because there's a part of me that if I really drop into that place of, say, what's happening in Queens, New York, or, you know, what's happening in Spain, really it just can overwhelm me. You know, sometimes I'll listen to stories on the radio and I'll just go to tears and go, oh, my God, you know, it's just heartbreaking some of the stuff that's happening. Then the other piece that's been going on is this webinar I had with my teacher, Robert Waterman, and he had this very interesting thing to say, and again, I'd love to get your reflection and it's just a sentence here. It says, coronavirus as a future we invented so it could come back and rescue us. Say that line again. Yep. Coronavirus as a future we invented so it could come back and rescue us. And I can elaborate a little bit on that. I think part of the thought is that we had gotten so embroiled as a culture, as a world culture, in the whole busyness, you know, we have to keep moving forward. And, you know, we were losing compassion. We were, we were losing a, a certain part of our humanity. We certainly had lost touch with nature completely. 
And now coronavirus has gotten people back to contemplating their own solitude if they are in quarantine. That all of a sudden, you know, it's like hearing a reporter in Nairobi, Kenya, saying this is the first time I've ever seen, visually been able to see Mount Kenya from Nairobi because the pollution was too great in the past. People in New York City saying that walking out, you know, just to say walk their dog, saying here's a tree in blossom, and I've lived here for 20 years, and I never noticed it in blossom before in my life. So there's this very interesting thing that's happening that all of a sudden things are slowing down enough and people are getting back in touch with the world again. And I think it's also getting back with hopefully themselves as well as the people around them again. It's really lovely. I've definitely been thinking about much of those same things over and over again in many different ways. The one thing that struck me about Waterman's line is it sounded rather anthrocentric. Yeah, I, I know just what you're saying, that, oh, well, this is really just exactly for us, that it's trying to shift our perspective because the rest of nature is, you know, is struggling in one sense because of whatever we have, for instance, thrown in the atmosphere, that kind of stuff. But also nature seems to be breathing sort of a sigh at the moment. I was actually thinking of anthropocentric in the sense that it's us humans that created this for our our own benefit. Not just for our own benefit, but because I think everything and nature, you know, everything's benefiting from it. But the notion that we created it, see, I've been more inclined to think of it as, you know, we're part of nature. It's not just us, and it's nature that created this, right? Yes. But we are definitely an integral part of nature, despite our attempts to uh, thwart that or deny it. Or Or believe otherwise. (laughs) Or believe otherwise, exactly. And even exist otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So I think in concert with the very thought that you just mentioned, if I was to translate that sentence of Dr. Waterman, that it would be that contributing to what's already happening with nature, our collective unconscious, you know, it wasn't us exclusively, but in concert with nature, that this came about. Yes. Yes. And I want you to read it again, because I love the language of it. Yeah, yeah. So here it is again. Coronavirus as a future we invented so it could come back and rescue us. Mm-hmm. I love the non-linearity of the time element in there. Yes. Isn't that glorious? You know, again, that collective unconscious. I think we talked about this in the past, too. Remember the film Arrival, when she finally broke down the language of the heptopods, and the heptopods explained... We came here to help you because in 3,000 years, we are going to need you to help us. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting that there are, and I don't know anything about the veracity of any of this, but there are people who channel other beings who claim to be humans from the future. Yeah. And they're saying very similar things. How beautiful. I haven't heard that. That's, That's wonderful to hear. And also people who are encountering what they believe to be aliens, having those quote-unquote aliens telling them that they are them from the future, coming back to try to communicate something. I just find it all very interesting, you know, whether it's 
quote unquote truth or fiction, you know, in a, in a strong sense, I think that they're all true. You know, if you can imagine it, it has a kind of reality to it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, Dr. Waterman mentioned in this webinar, he just for a second talked about the conspiracy theories of, you know, weaponizing the virus in Wuhan and 5G and all those different things. And he just said, I believe them all. But the bottom line is, we're still going after this sort of evolution of the soul to get from human being to become more like divine beings. Right. It's sort of like, it's all very, very possible. And yet it's At the same time, it's all basically irrelevant. It's kind of moot because it's not what is really important. Exactly. Because we get to experience what we experience. We have the product of whatever, however it occurred, and yet we still have the same challenge of dealing with how do we respond to the challenges that arise in our lives. Because I think that that kind of conspiracy thinking is really people just getting stuck in the mental. And, you know, my immediate response is always like, but there's still people dying every day. And this is what we still have to deal with. And we still have to deal with helping each other and figuring out a way forward. Right. And that in itself, that issue of people dying, that is such a fascinating and rich area because I think that challenges us to face our own mortality, our own personal mortality, and also the sense of the mortality of the people around us, the people that we love or are attached to or that we see on a daily basis. And it's a challenge for us to imagine them not being there in the next moment or the next day or or something like that, or for us to imagine that we're not here. What does that mean? What does it mean to not have a narrative-based sense of self. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah, and I think this is part of this sort of, I don't know, I'm just hoping for this or if it's actually taking place, a certain softening. And this is getting beyond, you know, the kind of literal narratives that are going on in terms of the news, all that kind of stuff. But all the different sort of little stories, you know, like, there is your neighbor in New Hampshire. I heard you know, the story yesterday of a guy who decided to run a marathon in his backyard. And he ended up doing, I think, 623 laps in the backyard in order to do it. And he raised a couple thousand dollars. Then even further, there was the, the gentleman in England, 99 years old, and he was raising money for every time that he could walk around this large track. And his hope was that by the end of this month, he was going to have completed 100 laps. Well, as of two or three days ago, he was on his 99th lap, and he'd already raised a couple million pounds for the health system of England. That's pretty impressive. That it, I think there's a certain softening. I notice, and you can tell me how your experience is there in Vermont, of course, there's still a certain anxiety in the grocery store, you know, the few times that I go. Oh, yeah. But beyond that... I just noticed, you know, like talking on the phone to people, you know, what little contact I have otherwise, there seems to be a softening and a caring that was under the surface probably in the past, but now is more on the surface. Yes, I I totally agree with you, and I'm seeing that everywhere, except for a few very rare exceptions. Yeah. 
And I'm also seeing it in the way I'm responding to people. Like, for example, yesterday I went shopping. I went into town for the first time in two weeks, and it took forever. I mean, we had to stand in line outside of the store just to get in. They were letting people in one by one right? as people were leaving one by one, and it was very slow inside as well. And it just took a very long time to get through the lines and everything. Everything was very slow. And I went to two different places. And at one other store that I went to, I was behind a woman who bought more food than I've ever seen anyone buy at one time. (laughs) And I think it took about half an hour for them to run her through. And she, she ended up leaving with about at least 10 bags full of food. I mean, big bags, really well strategically packed because she had limited bags. And she was apologizing for taking so long. And I said, oh, I don't think any of us really have anywhere to go anyway. Right. (laughs) And I just felt very open hearted. I mean, she, she felt bad about it. And I just, I just felt like she was just another vulnerable human being who was doing her best because she said that she's only going shopping once a month. So she's doing her best to honor the conditions and honor everybody else by being as minimal a vector as possible in this equation. And I just couldn't feel bad about having to stand for half an hour, literally half an hour behind her just waiting to get through. And I only had two items. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm impressed that she had the wherewithal to actually plan for one month in advance. Well, I think when you're isolated for a month, you have a lot of time to plan. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas when I went in... quite responsible, and at the same time, true, you had to wait for that half hour. And I don't know, like you said... What else are we going to do with our time right now? Exactly. I mean, it's not like we're in a rush. I mean, normally we're like, yeah, I would like to get on and get to whatever else I'm going to do, but I didn't have any place I needed to be at any particular time. Yeah. And I just recognized that, and I relaxed. Yeah. And and I think there's that softening showing up again, which to me is so lovely. Mm-hmm. And if we could approach life in general that way even even when we do have deadlines and we we do have to be somewhere at a certain time you know there are times when circumstances conspire against us and we're not able to make it to experience stress and anxiety doesn't necessarily help i mean stress and anxiety help when you're uh maybe when you're running away from a lion yeah but if you're in a situation where there's nothing that you can physically do to change the circumstances, stress and anxiety don't serve any useful function. No, no, because they're they're getting into, in essence, you know, the fear kind of thing that really isn't helpful. But that softening is what's so lovely to me, because like you were just saying, that, well, instead of going back to business as usual, and I realize that, yes, people need to be employed, they need to pay their rent, they need to eat food, they need to do all that, but can we incorporate some of this softness with, uh, and, and it may be, for instance, if I go see, 
you know, a doctor, I might have to wear a face mask for the next, you know, who knows how many months until this whole thing, who knows the vaccine or we get enough group immunity, something like that. It's a lot of unknowns in there. Yeah. And, you know, to me, so fascinating because on occasion I'll go hiking with a friend and, and of course, we still keep our social distance even out in the woods. But I, you know, we'll use the woods as the example of just being out in nature. And I said, you know, if anything happened to us out here, we'd have to adapt. So if I twisted my ankle, we'd adapt. So it's such an interesting time now that I think we're so used to our routines that there isn't a lot of adaptation required because it's like, well, I just go to the swimming pool, put on my suit, and I just do laps. But now we're at a point where everybody has to adapt, like the woman in line ahead of you. She's adapting accordingly. And it's interesting because I think there's a certain resistance with some people and other people that are flowing right into it simply because of necessity. Mm -hmm. A flexible approach to being in the, in the moment with things that, as they are. I think it's also just, you know, so almost inadvertently getting back in touch with nature in that sense. Well, I think you know, that the two are synonymous. Yeah. Presence is the essence of what nature is. Yeah. And our mental, our intellectual, brain-centered way of relating to the world removes us from that, at that's least correct. to some degree. And so, you know, that's the interesting thing, again, about hanging out in nature, at least often enough, and I'd hardly say that I'm one of those hardcore people that's out there all the time, but I'm out enough. So, you know, you're paying attention to the weather, you're paying attention to the temperature. You're paying attention to a number of different things so that you hopefully are prepared when you get out there. And if things get really crazy, you figure out either shelter or how to get the heck back to your car fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's a beautiful thing, back to that thing you were just mentioning earlier about anxiety and stress, that in nature, if one goes into a panic mode, there is a pretty good chance that something bad will happen. Yes, exactly. And That's the thing. When we're faced with a crisis, we have two choices. We can dive into the panic and stay there, or we can experience the initial panic and then do our best to figure a way out. <laughs> yeah. And you, to me, it's, it's very much like what's happening in the world right now. Is So to what extent can we still stay calm? Getting back to something that you've been alluding to is that there's this general sense that we're all in this together and we really are depending on each other to help support each other in responding to this in the most responsible way for the benefit of each other. Remember the old movie Starman? Oh, yeah. There was this one scene which is really iconic where Jeff Bridges, the, the alien, he said, there's something really beautiful about you humans. You become your best in a crisis. Yeah. And isn't that a wonderful way to look at the positive side of a species that is basically insane and, <laughs> and totally out of touch with reality and, and its environment? You know, there was a piece that Adam Gopnik wrote in The New Yorker oh, a few weeks back, and, and the piece in essence was, how this pandemic was bringing the best and worst out of New Yorkers. And there were a bunch of photos that went with the piece. And he was really more focused on the good. Like, for instance, there was a restaurant in Brooklyn that had opened up its kitchen to provide free meals for other 
restaurant workers who were unemployed and were having trouble feeding themselves. Yeah, things like that are so beautiful. Yes. And I think it's like you were saying, it really can bring the best out in us. You know, there's one of my teachers, this is actually Robert Waterman's partner, Carrie Thorne. She was really trying to see if we could get people to create, you know, get some service projects going. And I think, you know, we realized at the end of this little Zoom conference call that everybody was kind of already doing it as it was. You know, it's like you having these conversations on your show, which is, you know, trying to give different perspectives, particularly like with what's happening right now in the world, which is just so interesting because I think it's what we need are more of those conversations. Like this week, the theme for my radio show is going to be tender mercies. What are those little, those little glimmers of, and you know, I'm always hesitant to use the word hope, but those little glimmers of hope that might be showing up, it's like, well, this isn't as horrible as, say, the end of the world. It's, in fact, the beginning of another world. And even if it was the end of the world, we're relating to each other in a totally different way now. We're, we're looking at each other in a much softer and kinder way. It's like, you know, that bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness? Yes. In the past, that was just like a rare, anomalous thing. Now it's becoming commonplace in our society not overall. The government isn't getting on board, really. Although, this would be a fantastic opportunity for them to do that, but they're still totally stuck in the old paradigm, as we see with their relief package, which is (laughs) mostly aimed to the ultra-wealthy, which is so so bizarre. There's there's a poem I read which speaks to this very point, not the government thing, but what you are saying just before. I read this last week, and it's not too long and it's from Ellen Bass, and it's called, If You Knew. And here's the poem. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, carrying them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, When the clerk at the pharmacy won't say, thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does a crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? So there's that softening again, and I think this is partly what's taking place. With this larger perspective, you know, it's sort of like the big roaring, you know, horrible machine, you know, on the horizon, we can hear it. We can't necessarily see it, unless, of course, I was living in New York City and working at one of those hospitals. But we can hear it, and now it's like, oh, so we're really, like you mentioned before, we really are in all of this, in this together. And that there really is no discrimination as far as, you know, what might happen to any of us. And now we start to really feel each other's humanity in the process. Right. We're reduced to a very simple, basic 
common denominator. Yeah. And that may be the same denominator as, say, being, you know, a maple tree in the forest and knowing that it's still sharing the exact same environment as every other living thing in the forest around it. And just as vulnerable to all the possible things that can come and take its life. Yes. Whether it's a human being with a chainsaw, a fire, insects. Yeah. And all of us human beings, we're all similarly vulnerable and susceptible. And in the end, we all die. Yeah. And yet we do everything we can to avoid it and to insulate ourselves from even the realization of its inevitability. And that may be the beauty to me of what's happening in a certain sense, that there was the very thing you were mentioning, how we can create our lives and pretend we're so busy and self-important and all that kind of stuff that we forget those very essential elements you just mentioned. And that this situation that's happening in the world right now gets us much more almost in, you know, in a deliberate way in tune with nature in terms of anything can happen at any time. How adaptable are you and how well can you maintain your balance as you're doing this? Exactly. And also, how open can you keep your heart yes. in the face of all of this? Uh-huh. Absolutely. If that's something that is a priority for you. Like, for me, that has become a primary priority because to live in any other way just wouldn't feel as good. It wouldn't feel... It just feel, wouldn't make any sense, really. It, right. It wouldn't feel like living anymore because the old way of living, just surviving and getting by me against the world and that whole thing, that was miserable. I mean, I remember how it felt to live that way. Yeah. And um, to go back there... And we periodically go back there. We have, we have those experiences that bring us back there. It, it's not satisfying. And it's such a relief when we remember, oh, yeah, I have another choice. Yeah. Whereas when I was younger, I had no awareness of there being another choice, really. Well, it is a pretty big conditioning going on in our culture as far as how we're supposed to be doing and that it is really us against them kind of thing. And... That's that old dualistic thing. And again, this circumstance we're in, you know, it's like back to that Waterman quote, that is, you know, we put it in the future to come back and rescue us. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is part of the rescuing is that opening of the heart you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So let me ask you a question that I know that you live in the woods and I know that you live alone. That, and I didn't know if you had a similarity to that kind of island experience that I was mentioning before that... I know I and my younger brother have done, regardless of our actual living circumstances. Do you feel any similarity to that? And do you feel that, that has this been any huge inconvenience, if that in fact is true for you, to have that sort of island existence? Yes, I do. As you mentioned, it's built into our culture. And for me, being out here in the woods, living by myself, is very convenient in so many ways, particularly at this time, because I know people who have to navigate their isolation with another person with their own peculiar, quirky responses to things. And basically, this hasn't changed my life outwardly much at all. It's only when I go out into the world 
that I see and experience a different world out there. Yeah, and then just the, the slight inconvenience of you having to set up your own studio there at home in order to do your show. Right, which in a way is kind of nice that I don't have to drive back and forth half an hour each way to do that. I mean, there are certain benefits, like, for example, my car inspection is about to run out, and there's too many things that need to be fixed on it for me to bother with that, so my car is going to end up in the junkyard pretty soon. And I'm actually thinking about not getting a new car. You know, maybe I can carpool with other people or borrow a friend's car when I need to go into town to go shopping. I can do my radio show from home. And maybe on occasions I could borrow a car to get into the station if if I had a, a live person to meet there if we ever get out of this isolation thing. Because with all the talk about there being a second and third and fourth wave of the virus hitting us over the next couple of years, Right. some states may never come out of the sheltering in place and isolating thing, or some yeah. aspects may never come out of that. So on one hand, I think the, the adaptation you're talking about in terms of your car, that's really very interesting. You know, it's like me going to the grocery store and, for instance, seeing a particular cereal I like is not available. So it's like, oh, I get to try something different. And so that's been kind of fun and easy. On the other hand, I know from my island perspective, Tonio, and, and, you know, for me, it's very much like you. It's like, it's not that different, really. So I was mentioning to my younger brother, I said, you know, I do still make a kind of a conscious point knowing my tendency that I could be very self-sufficient in, in my own island. I'm still reaching out, still hiking on occasion with a friend because I don't want to get too isolated. Mm-hmm. Right. There are certain things that are still important to us. Like, connection is still important. Yeah. Whether you're doing it over the phone, Skyping, Zooming, or, as you say, taking a walk with somebody. I mean, that's still a viable option. Like, I've done that a couple of times recently, and I stopped in after shopping to visit my father. And we stood out on the porch, actually... He invited me in, and then his girlfriend came downstairs and said, why don't you guys go outside? Why don't we all go outside? <laughs> <'Cause> she's <laughs> she's more, more concerned about being really extra careful about all these things. So we went outside, and I hung out for quite a while with my father out. It was sunny, so it felt nice out there until the sun went behind clouds, and then it was rather cold. But um, it was really nice to see another human being and relate to them, even though we were keeping distance. I mean, I spent many years in California and out there, we all hug each other all the time. Yeah. And really warm, deep hugs. And the other day I was thinking about California because I've been interviewing this woman who lives out in Santa Cruz. And I was thinking about how, God, this must be really, really rough for those people who live on those hugs, who live on that kind of intimacy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I know, like, it's, you know, the grocery store where I go, it's all organic, non-GMO, and it really is kind of a communal gathering place in the sense that if you run into someone you haven't seen them in six months, you'll be talking to them for a half hour easily just to get caught up, check on things. And that doesn't happen right now. Exactly. And I can see that there's a hunger 
they're feeling it. It's like we can't even connect this way in this normal setting to where we would be doing this. And that's one of the concerns I have for the future is are we going to end up being corralled into an adaption to this that continues on in a way that really changes our social way of being in the world with each other? You know, it's a great question you're posing, and I guess what I'm wondering in relation to that is that the first thing, which is where we are now, is this conscious awareness that we really can't be, you know, within a certain distance of each other. And that's fascinating in a sense, and maybe that will create enough of a longing to say, how are we going to figure this out in terms of how can we get back to touching each other? Mm -hmm. Now, I suspect that they will come up with a test that is very simple to administer and get immediate results so that everybody will know where they stand and therefore can navigate through life in a more, quote-unquote, normal way. Yeah. But just being much more informed of these new constraints. You know, it says to be in, in a certain sense, here's that, that property management part again, Tonio, is like when there's a plumbing leak that obviously you, you, you find out where it's leaking, then you isolate it, and then you repair it accordingly. And that's in essence, you know, what we're doing through the quarantines, but it's really quite haphazard because we haven't really been able to track down, if you consider the sheer volume and possibilities in terms of human beings and their traveling and all that kind of stuff. But I think there may get to a point of really, truly, you know, getting as many people tested as possible, and we really will know, like, oh, you know, we can go to this, for instance, this event. In fact, I know a friend here in Taos, and he's somehow connected to a private club that he owns out in California, which is like a little nightclub. And this was even before the big things started blowing up. They had one of those temperature testing devices on each person's forehead as they were entering the club each night. So they weren't messing around at all. In fact, I went and I had some finish-up dental work, and I was actually surprised they were calling me up to finish it up. And they said, no, you just wait in your car. As soon as I opened the door to my car, there was the assistant. She had the temperature testing device right on my forehead. She said, 97.1, come on in. Now we want you to gargle, go back in the bathroom, gargle for 45 seconds minimum, then we'll do the work. I was like, oh, so here's the new reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are communities that were experiencing this decades ago, like in the gay community, people would, you know, they would talk about their bona fides, you know, how recently were they tested for, for HIV? Right. Right. right? And they were on top of it. Yeah. And, yeah. and those people who were concerned about their lives and also concerned about not infecting others, that was a very important, serious aspect of life. Daily life, yes. Right. So and maybe I'm, this new bottom line, and you know, who knows how long it'll persist, but this new bottom line is going to create this whole other new awareness, yes. which is both, yes. you know, I, I think trying to be prudent at the same time, you know, more caring, mm -hmm. more conscious of, you know, our, you know, our activities with each other, all these different things, which we really have kind of let go by the wayside in, in the last while. Well, we've taken so much for granted for yeah. so long. And when this blows over and we can, you know, go up to somebody and hug them, will we need to, you know, ask them, are you, you know, each are other? You cool? Are you cool? Yeah, are you safe? <laughs> can I hug you? 
you know, yes. the impulse that we've had when we see somebody that we love yeah. to just go up to them and hug them. It's like we're going to have to put that on hold for a moment and say, have you had a test lately <laughs> or something right. like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and, you know, it's such an interesting new reality, but I do think it's creating a greater awareness of each other in relation to each other. And that's really good because, you know, it's like that piece I wrote that talked about, you know, there was a certain arrogance, I think, that particularly Western culture had gotten to in terms of traveling endlessly, in terms of this busy, 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 in terms of how much money can I make and how many things can I own, all that kind of stuff. And Dr. Waterman, back to him, you know, he really says that one of the things that this virus is really trying to bring out for us is a greater sense of humility. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking even the most materialist and quote-unquote greedy people on the planet, they may experience a bit of tempering in those areas. Things may change as we emerge from this. Well, and if nothing else, Tonio, like there was an example only a few days ago. You may or may not have seen it. Actually, there were two examples a couple days ago. One was David Geffen, the record mogul from L.A., and he was tweeting from his 475-foot yacht that he was in the Caribbean floating out there on the waters and doing fine, and the social media backlash was intense, crucified him. And then Ellen DeGeneres, she was tweeting from, or maybe it was an Instagram feed from one of her mansions and saying, it's all working out for us. And again, she got the huge social backlash of like, oh, just because you're rich, it's working out. And so if it isn't happening on a personal level, that tempering, it's definitely happening in terms of feedback because celebrities, of course, want to be seen. And if they're being seen the wrong way, they're going to hear about it. How interesting. So I've been proven wrong very quickly. Well, no, I, I think there probably are <laughs> others, though, that we're not going to hear about who are really doing the very thing you are talking about. I don't know if you saw, there was that clip of Tom Hanks, who was the host of last week's Saturday Night Live, and he was being recorded in his kitchen. And there was something really quite humble about the whole thing. There was no flashy, big music and applause or anything like that. And he was just talking about his experience, he and his wife having the virus, how he has no hair on his head, but that was because it's, I think, a film role that he's involved with right now. And he was just being a regular guy. And there was something endearing about that. So did that happen after the Geffen and DeGeneres thing? <laughs> no, actually, that happened prior. Oh, good. Good for him. You know, it was very interesting because, again, speaking of adaptation for that particular show, they have so many people involved in the cast, and they were all contributing from their homes. There was no studio work done whatsoever. Wow. Yeah, I was just wondering how things like that are going to, you know, the kind of new genre of movies, of films and things are going to come out of all of this. And it's like we're living in a science fiction world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. And I think we had done this in a previous conversation, this whole idea of what is our ongoing training. Uh -huh. And this is on every different possible level, yes. you know, whether we're taking yes. care of ourselves physically, emotionally, uh -huh. psychologically, spiritually, you know, energetically, all these different levels, so that when something like this comes along, it's sort of like, okay, bring it on. You know, I've been training. Let's see, let's see how, how well I've done. Or even if we're not doing the, the George Bush bring it on thing, <laughs> we, we could be like, well, this is what's happening. You know, let's stand and, and face it. Yeah. My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. 
yesterday when I was out on the porch talking to my father, a number of people walked by and we all said hello to each other. And at one point we were whistling to the birds and this woman walked by and said, are you communicating with the birds? And I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, oh, I do that too. So there's a tremendous amount of softening around here. I think people are, are really thriving on whatever kind of human contact they can get at this point. Well, and I also, you know, obviously it's been a long time since I lived in Vermont, but I always felt one of the prominent things of living there was that there's a great sense of community. I mean, the fact that you're living through the kind of crazy weather that Vermont has to offer, that in itself creates a community. But I also would imagine, because I have not lived, you have lived in the city when you, know, when you were growing up, that there is a great sense of community and neighborhood, you know, whether you're in Queens, Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, any of those places. I'm not sure about that. My strongest memory of living in the city was on this one particular street, which was a very strange environment. It was a very long block between the two avenues, maybe as, as much as two or three blocks the other way. And the environment was completely different from one end to the middle and to the far end of that one block. It was like completely different environments and cultures. Did they feel, even within their separate environments, did they feel connected to each other? No, they were only connected to each other by physicality. On the far right end, if somebody left a car there for more than a day, every day you would see various parts removed from the car, and eventually the car <laughs> would be up on, on boxes, and yeah. it was literally stripped by a right. week or so. Yeah, and, that's Albuquerque right now. So that's on one end. Uh-huh. We lived in the middle, and there were a lot of immigrants, a lot of Puerto Ricans in the neighborhood, and there was a Puerto Rican bodega across the street. There was also a small convenience store kind of next door that sold, you know, you could get soda pop and Hostess Twinkies and, you know, things like that, <laughs> ice yeah. cream, you know, just basic junk food store. But then to the left on the far end, the Hells Angels lived on that end. Yeah. And there was like a long line of bikes lined up there. And every Sunday morning, early in the morning, they would parade around the block <laughs> So it was a bizarre street. Yeah, yeah. Well, and don't forget, at that time, there was, I think, more of that isolation, you know, in the cities because it was really more that, you know, protection and, and that kind of screening going on. It would be curious to see if there is any shifting that's taken place since this outbreak. And I imagine it would be very, very different in different neighborhoods. Yes. Like, we were in a very poor neighborhood, and I think peop a lot of people felt isolated in that way. Yeah, and, and there is that rather, you know, astonishing figure that's happening with this particular outbreak, that poor people, and particularly African Americans, are disproportionately getting affected. And then seeing the images, like, outside of a hospital in Queens, which is really one of the, the, the places where it's really getting hit, and... I mean, it's like, I can't even imagine they're seeing upwards to 2,000 people a day. That's mind-boggling. But then there was an interview with a lovely woman who was an ER doctor, and this was in the state of Washington, you know, where it was originally breaking out. And she was so matter-of-fact, beautiful, but I mean, it was so touching. 
that, you know, of course, she missed having the contact with her family because she was working long hours. And then she just matter-of-factly said, but we are trained for this. And she said, we just wish we had enough equipment and enough help to do the jobs we were trained to do. Right, getting back to the adaptation thing, that we've been hit by something that we weren't really prepared for. I think this is going to change the way we think about the future, and that could affect us both in a positive way and a negative way, because as we become more prepared, it also brings along more stress and concern and fear and anxiety along with it. Maybe this is going back to that Robert Waterman thought again of like, well... We really want to go after all humanity here in order to get this other perspective that we've been talking about, that softening, and maybe like in in that article I wrote, how do we get closer to this larger loving, which is more where we're really wanting to evolve towards, because like you said, it just feels better. But in order to get there, we have to wake up all of humanity, And, and that's why this virus is so intelligent in that way, in the way that it is affecting everybody. Yes. Yes, it's so fascinating. And again, I know that there's all this discussion out there about the literal, but I love that we're having this conversation, which is, well, so if there is something that that it's trying to teach us, because I think this is this sort of perspective that was showing up in my mystery school, which is that all these things that happen to us are really here, even though they do have that potential, like in nature. Nature is really quite ambivalent. Does, you know, like if the zebra gets nailed by the cougar, you know, nature's like, well, that's just how it is. That's the setup. And the same thing is like humans with a virus. Well, if humans go, nature's just like, well, that's just how it is. That's the setup. But If these things in our lives are all here, like in that Rumi poem, to try and bring us forward somehow to a new place, then it's like, oh, so if we start really looking at it this way, and if we all start, you know, heading towards this other thing, will even that have an impact on what's happening with the virus? Right, like normal-scale forest fires are great for renewing the forest. So is this virus really like nature's way, and we're a part of nature, as you mentioned earlier, that is this nature's way of how to get things back in balance again? And not only just the atmosphere and cleaning up the water and the ocean, things like that, but to get our nature back in balance. Yes, exactly. And because we have been doing everything we can to insulate ourselves from that effect, it makes the effect when it finally does break through that much more pronounced and feel extreme. That's perfect, Tonio. That is perfect. So again, you know, it's interesting. This is kind of my terrain, and I realize that I'm an outlier here, but I know you're in the same terrain, which is this is really still about the soul. And, you know, there's the soul of the world, which is, you know, the larger picture. And what is the relationship of our souls to the soul of the world? And can we be somehow having a cooperative relationship, which is exactly, to me, what nature, one of those things nature represents, which is, it's almost like the full cooperation of chaos. It connects to that notion of thy will. Yes. And instead of associating thy will to God, associating it to nature, to the whole of the universe, of of all creation and all possible creation, thy will as opposed to my little ego's will or desire will. And, you know, I've been playing with this idea because I know that we've had this 
discussion about that word God in itself and how it's become so laden with baggage and all the kind of crazy things, how people use that word. But I've been wondering, like, if from this perspective that I've been presenting, you know, in terms of a curriculum of the soul, is, you know, like the full-on manifestation of God is not only in terms of these higher self attributes of, say, whether it's love or compassion, patience, surrender, things like that, but it's the very thing you just said, that the full-blown physical manifestation of God is, in fact, nature. Yes. Nature is the outer manifestation of it, although nature also has an invisible soul nature as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like when they do the research, for instance, of aspen groves and how totally interconnected the root systems are and that they're actually giving each other information, mm -hmm. like insects or if there's, you know, like we're in a heat wave and we need to conserve water, things like that, that there's this whole intelligence going on that we've never been aware of prior. Although it, I think people who hung out in nature have yeah. known that it's been there all along. Yes, and it's not just through the roots. They send out, like, hormonal chemicals in the air. You know, we're so hung up on particles, you know, yeah. physical things. We don't know the extent of the way nature communicates with itself. You know, we don't know if it's particles or waves. In fact, physics says it's both. Yeah. And what is a wave in terms of communication? It's a non-visible thing. It's something that we are just beginning to be able to work with and measure. We can work with and measure some of the waves, but there's still probably a a whole spectrum of wave information that we have yet to understand in a uh, kind of intellectual way. This is heading to the conversation you're having in parallel to what we're doing here. Is it Tisha is her name, who studied with William Tilley? Nisha, with Nisha, yeah. William Tiller. Yeah, yeah, William Tiller, exactly. That, you know, there's this whole thing about intention and what that will have to do, or, you know, like the consciousness of the observer changing outcomes, things like that. We're barely touching any of that stuff. Exactly. You know, I think in the old days, you know, as the predecessor to Dr. Hugh Len, the Ho'oponopono guy, he worked with, I think, Simonia Morea was her name, and she could go out and talk to plants and find out what their medicinal properties were in these conversations she had with them so that she could use those properties to help people that she was treating at the time. And isn't that a fascinating thing? There was a woman whose book I was reading for an interview that I've been wanting to get to interview. She lives in Australia, and she's often off the grid, and it just hasn't happened yet. But her book, Thus Spoke the Plant, is absolutely, spectacularly fascinating because she communicates with plants, and she, she writes about that. And it's mind-blowing in a really, really beautiful way. Yeah, Initially, I was feeling a certain fear when all this came about, and now I'm feeling, and I, I, again, I'm hesitant to use the word hope because I don't want to create a destination per se, but I'm really, I feel like almost like the little kid in the playground for the first time and seeing, so what new, you know, it's sort of interesting, this is all happening right now as spring is erupting, what new is going to show up in the course of this wild ride we're going through at the moment? Yes, exactly. That's That's been my question, and instead of trying to figure it out, and instead of trying to direct it, I'm just going to play the interested and fascinated observer 
who has no idea what rabbit or which bush that mysterious rabbit might jump out of. Yeah, and I think part of this, too, you know, again, back to you know, sort of the literal world, there's a certain silence that is taking place. And I loved, again, here's Dr. Waterman. He says the thing about silence, silence gives God the chance to talk to itself. Right, it yeah. allows the space for, yeah. for things to be and also for us to directly experience them. Yeah, and so there's this larger silence, like people mention in cities, they're not hearing the trucks, they're not hearing the planes, they're not hearing the honking, any of that kind of stuff. So this silence has sort of descended on us, and it's giving people, I think, this opportunity. You know, and right now there's this interesting fulcrum showing up where a lot of people are confronting their loneliness, those people who are, you know, living in an apartment by themselves. They don't have a partner. Of course, they probably have friends, whatever. But that how does one shift? from this place of loneliness, which always has a longing inherent in it, to the place of getting comfortable with one's solitude. And this is not to say that loneliness still isn't going to show up. That's part of the human experience. But solitude is really a very, to me, a special, almost sacred place. And that's where Rilke always wrote a lot of his poetry, you know, pointing to this idea of it's in the solitude that these other things can emerge. Exactly. Solitude is the magic portal. Yeah. And maybe that's what we need a little more of at the moment so people can reflect, like the celebrity, for instance, with way too much money can reflect of, well, is there a better way that I, instead of having the fancy meal in Paris and spending, you know, $12,000 just to do that, that maybe I could donate that money to a food bank here in Burbank and see if that's going to help the world move along. Or instead of going to some fancy lunch, maybe if I just sit and be quiet for a moment. You yeah. know, instead of trying to gratify myself in some sensual way, what if I just sit silent with no desire, no agenda? There's always plenty of opportunity to go there at another time, but, but to spend more time in that silence. In savoring that, the silence instead of savoring a meal. Yeah, sitting in that silence of infinite possibility where the portal opens and anything can come. Whether anything comes or not is irrelevant. Right. It's just opening up the space of that possibility. And this goes back to that idea that Waterman was talking about also of humility, that when we get to the place of not knowing, that is really quite an ideal place in general. Because then when we don't know, then our arrogance clearly cannot be part of the package. Or at least when it pops up, it's seen for what it is. Yes. And, and I think in the largest sense, isn't that the whole idea, you know, I've been noticing, like on the NPR website, that they're already projecting when the virus is going to peak in individual states, things like that, that we're so obsessed with knowing in our culture. And we're so uncomfortable with the not knowing, like, so who is this virus going to take out? You know, who is going to get infected? All those kinds of things. And the not knowing, though, is really more from a spiritual point of view, really the advantageous place to be. And also that notion of the virus peaking at a certain point, what does that really mean? Yeah, really. I mean, that's such an abstract point on a map. Well, and I think there's, you know, the implied trying to assure you know, because a lot of people are, you know, and you know, here's this lovely human tendency, although in the long term it's not great, which is we just want things to be back to normal. Right. The relationship, you know, between any kind of couple that's going through its craziness 
and there's one partner who says, I just want to get back to normal, and the other partner is saying, well, but we can't really go back because we've already gotten this far, and we either find a new normal or we're probably not going to stay together. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be going back to quote-unquote normal or the old normal. I think that is gone. No, I agree with you. I totally agree. And how do we resolve these things? It was like even this idea even showed up in a dream last night, the thing I was telling you about earlier, about to what extent, Rick, are you going to do this island thing and pretend that everything's A-OK and keep yourself isolated and to what extent are you going to still keep trying to connect out there in the world so that you don't just get stuck in your own little kind of pretend arrogance that everything's going to be okay on your island. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's that movement thing, which I think I might even have this on my refrigerator. It's Alfred Adler, and he says, Trust only movement. Life happens at the level of events, not words. Trust movement. And I think there's that aspect of the soul that's just so happy when there's some kind of movement taking place. Mm-hmm. And because I certainly know, say, in previous relationships when things got stuck, oh, man, that's my version of hell. Mm-hmm. Right. And I contributed to it. Yeah. We don't like being in stasis. We don't like sitting in limbo. I spent so much of my life sitting in limbo, and it was excruciating. And yet, there's actually something very dynamic about it. It's, yeah. It's sort of what like... What did you learn when you were in that process? Um... I have no idea what I learned when I was in that process, but one thing that happens, I think tension builds. It's kind of like a spring gets loaded so that by the time you do come out, you've got some energy behind you to work with whatever you gain from being in that place. Because I think the only reason for being in a place of stasis or being stuck is that you have something to work through that we have some strange way of relating to it, whether we're, I don't know whether we're resisting something, whether we're afraid to face something, and we're just sitting in this place until we get to some place within ourselves or gain something to help us get to the next step. So it's it's like one of the steps can be just going nowhere. And, yeah. and the The idea, you know, the visualization is that you take one step after another, but sometimes the steps are a step of staying in that place for a really, really long time for reasons that we cannot quantify. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because this is really where a lot of problems show up in the culture, whether we're talking addictions, whether you're talking depression, things like that. It's getting stuck in a certain place and clearly there's from my perspective a certain self-abandonment has taken place and of course it happens completely unaware to the person that this is going on because you know like i just heard a story somebody here in taos recently struggling with alcohol he was just going through the eighth anniversary of his fiance who had committed suicide eight years ago his sister had committed suicide a few years ago then his mother had died and i was thinking oh my god Alcohol looks like a great option for somebody like that. And how do they get through those sorts of hits to their lives to get to wherever the next place might be? And, you know, there's a friend I was talking to who is involved with AA and trying to help this person. He says, it's just one day at a time, man. You know, you didn't drink for two days. And he's like, you got one day at a time. See if you can make it the third. 
Boy, that's a rough place to be when you're like hanging on by your fingernails. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, here we are just being human. And I realize for some people, it will take them out. Right. Some people are not going to make it through in what we would consider a positive or creative way, while some will. Some people emerge from that kind of a crisis of addiction and deep depression with just tremendous creative energy and inspiration. But there's no rule to it. I mean, it's different for everybody. Well, I, I kind of think of it as, you know, it's more evidence of how idiosyncratic each soul is. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that I love the story of the woman who, and, and it was a TED Talk, how she had lost both legs. She was doing a whole TED Talk on her prosthetic devices and how she had become a marathon runner. And she had all these beautiful, amazing carved legs that were behind her. And these were all the different legs that she would use when she would do whatever event. And she told this one little story very quickly, which was about one night she was going out to a party and a, a woman friend came over, you know, to join her and they were going to head out. And the woman says, you're like three inches taller. And the woman, you know, the amputee said, yes, yeah, so. And the woman who had regular legs said, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> so here this gal completely surpass what anybody imagined, you know, to become, you know, it's like, I'm just going to become a marathon runner regardless. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. And then the other person, like the guy I was telling you about, he may not make it. I hope he does, because if he does, he'll be the shining light to be able to help other people. Or he could be. But as you say, each soul has its own way. Yeah. We each have our own way, and it's a mystery. It unfolds before us. Yeah. So, you know, here we have this wild pandemic going on, but this is nothing compared to, you know, I think you probably know the story of, of his name was Kevin Hines, and he was one of the few people that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And he was, I think, 18 at the time. He had heard all these voices in his head as he went on the bridge that day that were telling him to jump. There were a number of other people there. So he jumps. As soon as his hand left the handrail, he knew he had made the greatest mistake of his life. So he lands in the water, and he survives, which was astonishing. He's treading water with his arms, and a sea lion shows up. And the old sailor mythology is sea lions will show up to help save a life. Mm-hmm. So the sea lion kept circling him to help him afloat, And within 10 minutes, they rescued him. He makes it to the hospital just in the moment that the surgeon who could handle this surgery was about to head out for the weekend, got everything put back together. Now he lectures, and he's helping people who are considering suicide. Hmm. How's that for a journey? (laughs) Those stories stories are wonderful, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting how the pandemic has taken over the news. But there are still people struggling with all these other things at the moment, even prior to the pandemic. Yep. And now it's just maybe, you know, like they're feeling more isolation. In fact, we just had news last week of a young gal, age 37, who did jump off the Gorge Bridge, which is only a few miles from my home. And it seems to be a popular spot for people to take their lives because it's about a 300-foot fall, and nobody survives that. So I'd read that in the paper, and my heart just drops like, oh, God. How sad. But on the flip side of that, their suffering is over. Yep. So it's sad, 
from one perspective, and it's also beautiful from another perspective. Yeah. You know, I, I think of, you know, of course, here we are still on this side, like her family, her friends, and the repercussions that that has whenever a suicide takes place. But your point's well taken as well, which is like, well, now she doesn't have to go through what she's doing. Yeah, but it is always the people left behind who have to live with that. Yeah, and, you know, and I think of all the people during this pandemic, you know, it's this very interesting time where we just don't know. Some people are just not going to be here with us in another year. Yep, and if it's not the virus, it's something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this wild ride called living. Yep, called life. (laughs) Once you're born, that seals your ultimate fate. (laughs) It's a one-way ticket to death. Yep. So, you know, my view is if we're here, let's have a really good time and, you know, sort of bring it all on. And that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And here we are through kind of the bad and the ugly. And it's like, well, okay, so how well can I adapt to that? And is there anything, I mean... It's in my prayers every day, Tonio, for the people that are working not only in the hospitals, but also, you know, the truck drivers and the people at the grocery stores, the people that are at the food plants, you know, all these people that are still making this thing happen for all of us, which to me is amazing. Mm -hmm. So what is it for you that helps you the most to see even these kind of tragedies and challenges in such a beautiful way. It's such a great question. And if there's anything, Tonio, and I've been doing this more and more with myself, I keep challenging myself, how does this connect to the larger template of nature? And of course, it helps having somebody like Robert Waterman around and getting his perspective, because he keeps going back to this idea of it's really all connected to the loving. That's really the underlying energetic that's happening throughout this whole thing and if i take that as the origins of my viewpoint and i think the loving is what's represented in that manifestation we talked earlier about nature then how is that happening so i just keep using nature as a template and say okay so if this is nature as a template then how do i you know work according to those very simple principles of cooperation adaptation and keep trying to keep things in balance So when this virus showed up, you know, I had to check in with my own fear and have a conversation with that. Then I had to look at, so to what extent am I going to adapt? Because there was a friend who's saying, Rick, what are you going to do? You can't swim laps. I said, there's always the woods. And if I keep using that as a template and I somehow can keep my arrogance in check, because I'm as susceptible as any other human when it comes to that, then it seems to work out. And certainly meditating every day is huge. And then to what extent can I keep tying into, you know, that term, whatever term you want to use, but, you know, that loving? How can I keep connecting to that so that there's a way to keep movement? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So if I was to ask you the same question, how would you answer it? It's pretty much the same thing. It, for me, the, the language would be staying open. And when, I, yeah. and when I mean staying open, I mean my whole being staying open, my heart my mind, my body. So the experience of openness, you know, experiencing it on every level of our being. And I think you also learned something else along the way. And tell me if you think this is true or not, but my guess is somewhere in your past, you started figuring out the difference between what you needed and what you wanted. And you still have the things you want, but 
they're not way past the things you need. Well, what I have found is that the things that I really want are much more in line with what it is that I need, I think. In and terms of, could, in a, in a soul sense, in a soul sense, not just a physiological sense. Like, yeah, yeah. I think we all need connection, mm-hmm. whether it's physical intimacy with other human beings and animals and nature, or whether it's a sense of connection to the universe or nature. You know, however, however we feel it, we sense it in our being through the wholeness of our being, not just yeah. our, you know, and that's a tricky thing to talk about because it's not, we don't learn that. It's, it's not something that we talk about in our culture, but it is something that's taken me decades to cultivate or to get to a place where I just naturally experience that a lot of the time or have that option available to me. Well, and, and you know, I think that the connection, and I would also add, and I think you already have this in there, basically, which is that connection to ourselves. Well, that's, that's the key. When we're open, when we're open in that way that I'm talking about, yeah. we are, there's nothing in the way of ourselves, experiencing yeah. ourselves. And, you know, it's interesting that this is, again, kind of the, more of the terminology of, of Dr. Waterman, that he really sees that there are these two aspects to ourselves. There's our soul, you know, and that's whatever individuality that that represents. And then there's our personality, which is where ego and all that kind of stuff, all the beliefs, everything show up. And, and the journey is really getting our personality to really get in line with what's happening with the, the inherent loving of the soul. Right now we live in a culture, at least prior to this virus, who knows what will happen after, in which it was really all about the personality, the ego, all the things that we wanted rather than things that we needed. And it was pretty much a sort of a negation of anything the soul might represent. And maybe part of the point of this virus is getting the soul to become a little more apparent. And if we get in tune with that, we're going to be getting in tune with this larger template of nature. Things just may work out a little bit easier. Mm Mm-hmm to become more aligned with our soul's desire, like to elevate our personalities, to elevate our egos, to be more in alignment with that. Yes, and like I was saying earlier, to become, you know, that process from the human being to becoming a divine being, which is exactly what you were just mentioning. Right, which is essentially getting out of our own way because we, all all the great teachers tell us that, that we already are one with the divine. Yes. Yeah, we already have the Buddha nature in there. It's just a matter of cleaning it up so that we don't keep, you know, like get rid of the attachments and it's just going to flow a lot easier. Like you saying, I'll just get rid of the truck because it's falling apart. Yep, less baggage, less obstacles, less things in our way. I hope you're not hitchhiking when it's 20 degrees below zero there in Vermont. Well, that's for next winter. And also, I don't think I'll be doing that. I was doing that when I was in high school. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be returning to that in this life. Yeah. So here, I have a short poem, and this is from our previous Poet Laureate of the United States, and maybe this is a place to end. You can tell me or not. It's from Tracy K. Smith, and the name of the poem is An Old Story. So here it is. We were made to understand it would be terrible. Every small want, every niggling urge, Every hate swollen to a kind of epic wind. Livid, the land, and ravaged, 
like a rageful dream. The worst in us having taken over and broken the rest utterly down. A long age passed. When at last we knew how little would survive us, how little we had mended or built, that was not now lost. Something large and old awoke. And that our singing brought on a different manner of weather. Then animals long believed gone crept down from trees. We took new stock of one another. We wept to be reminded of such color. Wow, that is such a beautiful demonstration of the power of poetry to metaphorize what we would otherwise not be able to represent of what the world is and yeah. can be. And I think, you know, that poem, obviously she's written it some time ago, but, you know, it really speaks. Well, here we are right now that all of a sudden it was like I was telling you about the story of the New Yorker who walked out of his apartment and noticed for the first time in 20 years the tree that's always been there is in full blossom. There it is. Yep. And I think that may be kind of the sort of underlying gift that's happening in this wild ride that we're going through at the moment. And, you know, this is not to diminish the kind of grief and suffering that's happening. You know, people who are losing people, people who are really being taken out, people are wondering, how are they going to eat tomorrow? That's all still part of this package. And all of those people get in my prayers because I keep sending whatever I can, you know, energy, light, whatever term you want to use, to those people so that things can still work out somehow. And even if they don't, to recognize, to fully acknowledge and account for the fact that we are very comfortable, very privileged. We are not really lacking for anything. And there are so many people who are in a state of crisis and are either on the verge of starving, and are truly, truly suffering. Well, and, and to use that term, you know, from Islam, you know, if it's God's will, that there's a certain point where I do have to let go. It's like my younger brother's asking, he's like, don't you get nervous going up there in the woods by yourself? I said, you know, if a mountain lion came and took me out, it would be fast, for one thing, and I would feel utterly grateful because I would prefer that than having some car wreck in the middle of a city. Yep. So I'm, I'm well aware of that thing. And actually, there are times, in fact, when I was hiking with this friend, there are these beautiful flowers that show up here and, you know, down by the river called Pasca, P-A-S-Q-U-E. They're a pulsatia flower. And they're sort of an Easter flower. And anyhow, this year, they've been very profuse. And there was one point we got into this sort of alley made of rocks, and there were just these flowers were everywhere. And I turned to my friend and I said, Okay, if you want to take me now, it's perfect because it's just not going to get any better than this. <laughs> yep, those kind of moments are really sweet. Yeah, and so I keep reminding myself, not so much as a fear, but it's like, that's part of the reason why I go out in the woods. It's like, well, maybe I'm increasing the possibility that rather than, you know, that, that you know, mangling automobile crash, that something will happen out in the woods and I'll be in heaven before I even get to heaven. Well, my sense of you is that you'll probably go peacefully in your sleep. That may be true. 
who knows, I did this hike the other day, and I never imagined I would ever do this particular thing in the winter. And I put on, you know, they have these great things called micro spikes you can put on the bottom of your hiking shoes. And I went up to, it's about a two-mile, 2,000-foot vertical climb to get up to that meadow that I sent you the picture of. And I was like, you know, I would never have imagined doing this any time earlier in my life. And I'm still doing this stuff, and I'm so happy. So I hope you're doing exploring new places too, Tonio, and I hope everybody else, even in their solitude, explore new places where it's like, wow, I never thought I could do this before. This is fantastic. May it be so. Yeah. So have we covered it all as usual? I think so. (laughs) I can't tell you. It's always, for me, so exciting to have conversations with you because they're enlightening for me, and I get to talk to you about things I don't really get to talk to with other people. So thank you so much, and thank you so much for doing your show. Well, it's my pleasure, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And until next time. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 